many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. It's a massive thanks to Claire Knight for covering Mornings this morning. She's done a great job of it. And hello there. I am Ash Berdebez. And I'm recharged after a delightful Christmas break. And I'm glad you can join me for my first Out of the Box back of 2016. Today's guest, I've got a really really good feeling about his music. So the winner of the Smack of the Year Award was announced on Tuesday night. Now this award exists to celebrate Sydney's most hardworking creative figures. And this year it went to someone who has worked tirelessly to bring local talent to one of the most recognised stages in the world. It's the head of contemporary music at the Opera House, Ben Marshall. Welcome out of the box, Ben. Thank you very much, Ash. It's lovely to be here. (laughs) It's good to have you here. Now I hear your wife is haranguing you last night. She had big plans for your appearance in Out of the Box. She had huge plans. She's listens to this show avidly and was thinking, right, I know exactly what can be going on here. And um, yeah, it was great fun actually working through the set list. She probably knows you and your music better than you do. She hey. does. There's a lot of key points here. So I, can, I guess we're getting kind of used to the idea with the Opera House, you know, having people like Royal Headache on its stage and, you know, House of Mints and Good God actually being able to program stuff there. Now, this has not always been the case at all. No, it it hasn't. And I don't think from any sort of conscious decision. It's just at some point in the last kind of 10 years, I think I must have been around 2006 or seven, the the, the people at the top of the building went, look, there is something wonderful going on in contemporary music. It's a key artistic area and it isn't represented under the the sails and we ought to be ought to be there and and involved. And, And it makes sense when you look at the Opera House, it's this spiky avant-garde building it's not a fusty old place and if your job as these sorts of victorian monuments to kind of taste and reflecting the aspirations of society sort of the reasons they were built it stands to reason you ought to be you know reflecting contemporary music as well i think this is one of the key areas that great art is being made at the moment and you booked a certain artist who are going to play in a few seconds now do you get to book your favourite artist? Is that, is that kind of how it works? You, you reach out to people and you say, look, I've loved you since I was very young and I would love you to perform in the most iconic building in Sydney, the world maybe. I, I didn't actually program <laughs> this artist that's coming up you next. Didn't. No, they have played the building but before ah. my time um, and have played while I've be- played in Sydney while I've been there but not not due to my programming. Okay. Um, it's always conversations going on and uh, a mighty, mighty artist. But yeah, you, you've got a wish list but you're not just programming programming your record collection. You, you are trying to make sure that, first of all, you're doing justice to the space because that's what you're being paid for, essentially. Then you're trying to make sure there's an audience because, unfortunately, the funding isn't great enough to program for nobody. And then sort of the third overlapping circle of the Venn diagram is my taste because otherwise I'm going to turn into a hack and be found out and, <laughs> you know, get told to have another job. So where it's it suits the environment, has an audience, and I think there's something substantial to it, 
that becomes, you know, a, a programming potential. Great. And as for your taste, Out of the Box is probably one of the best places to proof your taste. And we're starting the show with PJ Harvey. So why did you want to bring on Last Living Rose? Um, look, I mean, she's a, she's a genius and a towering talent. It was really this track and this whole album, Let England Shake, reminds me of starting at the Opera House in 2010. And it was just absolutely my record of the year for that year. And one of these very rare examples, and we will come to another artist in, in later on in the program, but Nick Cave's another example where their finest work is... 10 albums in you know this is very unusual it's unusual for a visual artist for a comedian for a filmmaker normally whatever makes you distinctive is early on in your career and everyone's hanging around for flashes of brilliance later on to come out with sort of stone cold masterpieces decades into your career it's highly unusual and the the album is incredible she's um she's fierce and i think she's brilliant Tuned into Out of the Box on FBI 94.5, and that just there was PJ Harvey. Last Living Rose. Now, I did want to ask you a little bit more about PJ yeah, Harvey. Please. So that was that was from when you were just starting out near the Opera House? Uh, the record came out in 2010, which was my first year at the Opera House as sort of uh, producer for contemporary music. Um, and I went to, and we were, it were only towards the end of 2010 really starting to form what we wanted to do with the contemporary music program. At the beginning of 2011, um, PJ Harvey performed uh, on sort of Let England Shake for the Sydney Festival. And I went along for my wedding anniversary with my wife in the State Theatre 
and it was just sort of we're at the beginning stages of putting together the contemporary music program for the opera house and watching this amazing sydney festival performance from pj harvey performing this majestic record with her sorts of you know arcane headpieces looking like something from true detective <laughs> it was just sort of going this is the standard we must be going for and this is great art and how are we going to mm. sort of get in the rhythm of the musical conversation to be making sure that figures like this are, are regularly having a conversation and know that the opera house is a place that wants to feature and, and program their work because aside from sydney festival there isn't another space where contemporary music is treated necessarily as an art form and, yeah. and i think it's mostly treated as an industry and i'm very interested in it as an art form that's really interesting. So the standard with PJ Harvey, that's actually pretty terrifying. Do you actually, you know, can you take big risks when you're booking the Sydney Opera House or do you have to make sure it's a surefire guest? No, you can take risks. You 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 have a sort of a balanced spread of risk over the year. So, you know, you're looking at the number of times you can really go out on a limb and maybe this will tank. But as long as you're proud, you'd still be proud of that artist and proud of your decision if it missed, that's okay. That makes you, me curious. You just can't have too many. Mm. You, know, you are responsible for your numbers. You can't be frivolous with your budget. It's taxpayers' money. But the job is to sort of take risks and sort of promote greatness. So, for example, Bonnie Prince Billy had only done sort of 700 tickets last time he was through town or maybe um, Bill Callahan. But we thought, let's try and do two, two and a half, three thousand tickets with these artists because they're these amazing forerunners for people like Sufjan Stevens and Fleet Foxes and Bon Iver, who we've had colossal success with. And both of those risks have, have paid off. Off. Um, and it's wonderful to be able to sort of draw out the lineage of, of great music and yeah. roll the dice on something you think is worth presenting in that format. Less like booking a venue and more like curating a museum of modern and... Oh, it, very much so. It's not at all booking a venue. I mean, I have hardly any dates available. I'm only supposed to do about 30 nights in the concert hall a year, plus another 30 performances in Vivid, and then there's the Graphic Festival as well. So the idea is, is not at all kind of 365 days a year move the artist through. You really are trying to select for, for excellence and impact and integrity and, and ambition. And I think you do that. Mm. Let's go for a bit of a flashback now, because as much as you are the head of contemporary music at the Sydney Opera House, you did start somewhere. And I think when you're a teenager, I think it's when your taste in music is obviously most forming. And I think it's your when you have the ability to feel the most. I don't know whether you can actually reach those dizzying heights that you will when you first heard, for example, the Pixies. Completely. I mean, the teenage years are when you're at your rawest and when art can sort of strike you the deepest in lots of ways. Um, and growing up in suburban Perth in sort of, you know, the 1980s and 90s, it was it was hard to find out what was good and what was interesting. We only got Triple J into like when I was 14 at high school. Um, there was no radio stations you could listen to. What you used to do was sort of look at the cool kids' backpacks and, <laughs> and try and read the band names. And if you sort of recognize one of them like The Cure, you might like some of the other bands they've scribbled on their canvas backwards. You're sort of forever craning your neck and sort of <laughs> writing down the Cramps or the Pixies or the Smiths and then sort of keeping that in a note and catching a bus into the city on the weekend and then going to an intimidating, you know, high fidelity type oh, record store, feeling. asking yeah. for this record, putting it on. It's really disappointing if you didn't <laughs> like it. It's taken you a long time to sit there with your headphones on. But it was just, it was an era where music was really hard to, to come across and, and I think the world is a 
better place for that not being the case anymore. But I was this particular song. I was 17 years old. It was my 17th birthday, and uh, an older friend was driving me back from sort of the the party, and just this track came on, and it just went struck me like a bolt of lightning, and went, oh my god! And it's sort of when you hear something that just chimes with your spirit so completely um, that it moves you and leaves you changed. Um, it's very rare, and this was one of those moments. Tuned in to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. My guest is the freshly smacked, Smack of the Year award winner, Ben Marshall, who is the head of contemporary music at the Sydney Opera House. And you just heard something from the Pixies that he brought in. A bit of, bit of a high school flashback. Completely, yeah. And it sort of was one of the big things that kicked me off into indie rock. And, you know, it's led to all sorts of different things. But it was it was sort of the opening of the rabbit hole down, which I disappeared for <laughs> many, many years. And we never got you back. <laughs> Still there today. I think we just might as well move on to our next song because you did listen to the Pixies in high school and we can move forward a bit to uni. Now, what did you study at uni? Um, I did a, a year of politics and then I transferred into law um, mm-hmm. and I had no idea what I wanted to do or be doing and it was one of those sorts of cultural failures of imagination that sort of if you're a kid that's good with words and not science you have one option in front of you yeah. which is sort of law. Unless you don't want to make money in which case you pick journalism. I guess there's there, there's <laughs> always journalism. Um, so I sort of spent a lot of time kind of mooching around the library. Law students I didn't want to hang around with that much. I kind of took all my study into the theology section of the library 
And um, <laughs> just because no to, one was there. Used to make mixtapes and kind of read comics and things. All these things that have ended up being my actual day job now. Yeah, because you, you uh, program graphic uh, as well. Graphic which as is, well. It's, I think it takes a lot of obsession to be able to program a festival like that. It's hard work. Yeah. <laughs> it does. And it's great fun. But yeah, this is a phrase George Miller used actually at the graphic festival is um, the invisible apprenticeship where you're working hard on things that you have no idea are going to be your um, your 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 end point in career. Exactly. You just had an obsessive I personality. I was off. Yeah. <laughs> you thought you were having a blunch, but it well, was a cultural was. education. <laughs> and here we are. So our next track is by Portishead. And why did you want to bring on Machine Gun? Well, there was this moment of, um, we talk about sort of the impact of the UK and going there a little bit later, but there was this sort of flood of amazing music from coming from the UK in the 1990s and Massive Attack had hit me hard and I'd gone through, you know, Love the Stone Roses and New Order and, and a lot of the American kind of indie rock. And Portishead were one of these artists that, um, which you sort of couldn't believe had become dinner party and coffee table music. You said, <laughs> and you listen to this next track you kind of go my god it's so depressing yeah, it's and too intense so to eat intense, your quail too but it just had this sort of effect and everyone was listening to porter's head yeah. um and the music was incredibly moving the whole trip hop thing was a big moment for sort of you know beats based music moving into sort of more of a rock and roll audience and these guys have just absolutely stood the test of time so they sort of remind me of this moment at university listening to massive attack and porter's head but then seeing them live and this track in particular and going oh my god you you've not allowed to be this good <laughs> you know this <laughs> many this magic? yeah this many yeah. years after you were supposed to be sort of essentially you know the record dummy you know and then sort of versions of that and i saw them at coachella in 2008 or something and then again in Parramatta park for harvest and oh that this was so good in particular and mm. you just go Wow. It's just like you could swim through the air. It was that thick with vibes. It just took over your entire mind, didn't it? Squeezed out every other thought and was just sort of tapping you on the chest. It was, yeah. yeah. And, and again, what listening to Beth Gibbons and watching her perform, you go, I understand. You can probably only do this a few times a year. There's so much of herself on display and it's so raw. It's just sort of leaves you, again, leaves you changed.
people through their music. Out of the box. You are listening to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5 and oh, my giddy grandfather, that was smooth. You know, Miles Davis, it's from an album called uh, Raised to the Scaffolding. It's this incredible piece he did just around the time of um, uh, Kind of Blue and he was flown to France to uh, just watch the rushes of this Louis Malle black and white film and this is him just watching the rushes and improvising with his band as he's seeing it for the very first time. Oh, that is so cool. It's ama- amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. And it was the first time it was when France sort of embraced him as a, a high-level artist and he went, I'm respected and the whole race issue that was dogging you know, a lot of jazz musicians in America sort of started to break away from him and he realised there 
was a place for him in France and to be treated just as an artist. And the soundtrack overall is glorious. And it's this really neglected moment in Miles Davis's career. But I chose it because it was a lot of electronic music after kind of getting into, you know, indie rock and then Massive Attack and Portishead. Electronic music and drum and bass and warp records and ninja tune had really sort of gotten a hold on me. And um, I'd listened to music that wasn't song based sort of for the first time and and jazz became sort of the next step after you know techno and drum and bass and and a refining of your taste then well I think it was just sort of bending your ears out of the shape of just listening to songs of verse chorus verse and there has to be a singer and this is the structure and when you're a kid this is the music you're exposed to mm. uh, the music I was exposed to anyway and then sort of having a, a moment with electronic music bends your head into uh, listening to soundscapes and listening to things that have a completely different structure and it was really wonderful just sort of going to record stores and listening to jazz records and finding out what you like yeah. and putting this on and going oh my god this is absolutely heartrending it's kind of nice how you have to kind of you, you almost have to teach yourself and allow yourself and, and push yourself to start listening to music that's outside of that pop structure because I think if you feel like you earn it when you do really appreciate it and you feel really like excited that you've finally broken through on this new genre you do and it's sort of you know it's a little bit intimidating because there's you know it's a huge other world and it's less sort of digestible but that's kind of the fun and the point of it as well and I just sort of love discovering okay there's there's jazz there's classical there's electronic music there's all of these things that are completely separate from the the world I knew from high school yeah and actually as the head of contemporary music at the Sydney Opera House. You have booked a classical act fairly recently and I, I guess because you're the head of contemporary music, you don't get a lot of uh, a lot of violins and, and pianos happening up on stage too much. But Oliver Arnold's. Yeah, Oliver Arnold's is, is a phenomenally great artist and he, he along with sort of Max Richter and Nils Fram and Ludovico Einaudi are this fascinating strand of contemporary classical that I think most of the people who enjoy their music and listen to it aren't really that conscious of listening to classical music. They treat it as sort of like ambient music. It's headphone music. It's music for, you know, doing your graphic design work too or for concentrating and studying. Um, but they're all classically trained and they're from that world. And it's a huge amount of fun putting that kind of music on stage at the Opera House, which is designed for classical music, but knowing that the audience is very contemporary and claps at the end of every song. And the, the artists are really... <laughs> and that doesn't happen doesn't usually. doesn't happen, yeah. That's not the etiquette. But these artists love the energy and the vibrancy of the normal contemporary music world. And they love bringing bringing, you know, the rigour and the structure and the discipline of the classical world into a freer, looser, more exuberant environment. Fantastic. And I like how we're going from talking about classical now and listening to some <laughs> smooth Miles Davis to something that, oh dear, it is quite a departure. What have we got coming up now? It is. So this track is um, called Demon Seed by Exocet. It's a drum and bass track. <laughs> it sounds terrifying as it's going to be, I'm no, sure. No, it's, it's really quite <laughs> gentle for, for that, that end of music. And it's a stand-in for all sorts of kind of periods in my life, I guess. It was sort of discovering so much wonderful music happening in the UK in the 90s. I kind of knocked on the dean of my law school's door who she'd just arrived from England. I wasn't the best student. He just, you know, had no reason to help me or know who I was. <laughs> and I just said, look, I, I want to get to you. You have to help me get to London. I hear you're from there. I want to do exchange there. 
um, please help. And he was amazing and helped arrange and exchange to the University of London. And I just made a beeline for this nightclub called The Blue Note. And at The Blue Note, it was um, James Lavelle's Mowax's Night. It was Ninja Tune's Stealth Night, Andrew Weatherall's Blood Sugar Night, Metalhead's um, Sunday Sessions, uh, Acid Jazz had a night there. It was in Hoxton and Hoxton was just a wasteland. And this single club made kind of that era of London cool. All the graphic designers and ad agencies started pouring in. And I just, London blew the back of my head off at 21. And I just, I discovered the really artistic end of kind of dance music that wanted people to get up and dance. It wasn't abstract and formal, but it had real artistic rigor to it and ambition. You looked at the sleeves for Warp and for Ninja Tune and mm, it was yeah. it was amazing music. And Metalheads was just this incredible drum and bass night where all the producers in London would come on a Sunday afternoon and stand around the walls, arms folded, watching kind of Groove Rider and Goldie and Fabio play their tunes and Doc Scott and see what was working. And there was in fierce competition and an electric atmosphere it was you could see kids from japan had flown over to come to this club it was a huge mix of kind of you know caribbean indian white student uni students like me and it was this really energizing incredibly active kind of musical laboratory yeah a place to make a pilgrimage to it was and i came away absolutely inspired by london and particularly the blue note the blue note needs a proper documentary or a book done on it it's this seminal night doesn't it, doesn't one exist that would no. be amazing no, I was talking to Fortet after his gig last week, and he oh, was just, just saying, casually. Well, <laughs> and he was saying that's this is the effect he was going for with Plastic People was trying to replicate the Blue Note, and just everyone you speak to, whoever went to the Blue Note, was just sort of that was a remarkable time for music and a remarkable time for England. It did sort of tail off a little bit, um, but this stands in for so much of that that then led to me being involved with music as a job. Awesome. So let's hear it, Demon Seed, Exocet. And out of the box, FBI 94.5. Ben Marshall is my guest today.
We've got some texts here on the text line, and there is a lot of enthusiasm for that track, but it's all new to me. It's called Demon Seed by Exocet, and it was bought on by my guest in Out of the Box today, Ben Marshall, who is the head of contemporary music at the Sydney Opera House. But that all came after he was a bit doof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, we're talking about the Blue Note Club and just being inspired by Metalheads, which was this incredibly forward-thinking and ambitious music. And I'd only ever really heard kind of, you know, the, the fairly obvious end of rave music kind of going to raves in Perth before getting to London Mm -hmm. and hearing this sort of ambitious sophisticated work that still was incredibly visceral and wasn't sort of abstract and thoughtful just grabbed me and I came back to Perth at university and just started writing for street press and had a really great friend called Craig Shuard and we started promoting events with what we thought was sort of music that wasn't getting an airing. Um, Did you feel like a bit of a prophet just by going going to the (laughs) going all the way to London and being like, I'm so enlightened. This music is amazing, and bringing it back to Sydney, be like everyone must must know. Yeah, or back to back Perth. to Perth. Yeah. It was there was a definite sort of Blues Brothers mission from God type <laughs> thing going on. You just you was inspired, and you felt other people would be too. And and actually, Perth had a big drum and bass thing going on. It was sort of you could see in the 90s the various cities got into different music based on who the talented DJs were. Um, the good DJs in Sydney were sort of Phil Smart, John Hardy, Simon Caldwell. So House was a very big sound in Sydney the big the most talented DJs in Melbourne were techno DJs Melbourne became a big techno city and in Perth there was Greg Packer who was an amazing DJ um, and LTJ Bookham was put up at his house for a kind of a rave that went terribly in like 1992 and how did it go terribly oh like nobody turned up it was like they built it for 30,000 people and you know <laughs> 3,000 people turned up um, oh you know it was total cowboy frontier stuff at yeah. the time and LTJ Bookham was mixing in Greg Packer's bedroom and Greg was just had his mind blown by the music he was playing and Bookham said look if you like these records you have them all it's my label I'm starting up soon and Greg just gave him 600 bucks at the airport drove him to the airport and said buy me doubles and Greg was making these mixtapes he couldn't play this music out there was no one would let him play this music it was so sort of ahead of its time and he made these mixtapes that just were collector's items in Perth we'd all rush to Ragabone Records for Greg Packer scratch mix number you know six and buy all these tapes he'd taped in his bedroom and so there was fertile ground to be working with but we felt that there was a sophisticated end to drum and bass that wasn't getting an airing Um, and did the moving through air parties and deep drum and ended up sort of deciding hey let's move this move this gig to Sydney yeah and so what was it like promoting those kinds of parties pre-Facebook really hard work (laughs) you were you spent your weekend sticking up posters you know around lampposts with sticky tape and it's still legal it probably is I don't know (laughs) these days you can do it all through Facebook why would anybody bother I suppose but yeah you were handing out flyers after gigs you would stick up posters you'd be getting them into cafes you'd be you know jumping on you know two SE was the local kind of indie radio station community radio station and just kind of we had a mailing list where you sent them mail you know <laughs> an address as in like two houses folding up bits of paper what? and flyers and stamps <laughs> and sending them to people's houses you know email still wasn't something everybody had um, that's amazing <laughs> that's so really amazing. old <laughs> yeah did you, did you just like get dressed in your poster uniform and just go hand them out and be like great gig no, come just, on you'd set aside an evening <laughs> fold them all up stuff the envelopes and go and tip them in the nearest you know, post Yeah, awesome. That is so good. And so when you moved to Sydney from Perth, you bought your party with you. How do you bring a party with you? Well, I just, I decided, look, I was 
finally going to become a lawyer after swearing blind I was never going to practice ah, and I would do shame. it to fund the money to move <laughs> the parties we were throwing in Perth to Sydney. So okay. sort of... So corporate law, like... Corporate 15 floors of lawyers, worked at Free Hills in mergers and acquisitions and, and commercial litigation. And, you know, it was a really good mental boot camp, but it wasn't, you know, most people who were in that position have worked very hard to be there and it's the thing they want to do and be and, and it wasn't the thing I wanted to do but you be. just somehow ended up and there it was really, yeah. you know it was really hard work and that was sort of invigorating and stimulating but it wasn't you could tell it wasn't making me very happy how does how does studying or doing law at that level make you think differently and you do, do you think it's actually helped you in your career yeah it's it's you have to sort through huge amounts of complicated information to find the relevant bit and you get this sort of machine for processing information to decide what the important things are um, quite quite quickly uh, and that's come in useful and you know understanding contracts and and not being scared of the business side of things mm-hmm. is it, it's all useful but um, yeah, yeah it, it's weird that the sticking up posters ended up more directly contributing to my current day job than, <laughs> than all that hard work. Thunk it. The one that your mum would have said don't waste your time yeah, get a real job it's, it's it, your real job it's now. It's weird well it all it all goes in the pot I suppose but yeah and 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 we did great things in Sydney and the first place we did gigs was the Hunter Bar which is now Frankie's Pizza mm-hmm, and yeah. did Moving Through Air and um, and got a radio gig on FBI when it started up. Oh yeah, tell us about a, uh, Velocity. It was Velocity, so um, Friday nights 11 till 1, uh, Craig Shuard and I, DJ Shuey, would kind of present the show and that extra set tune used to get played a bit on that and then we'd go out postering and gluing things up on hoardings and sticking things up and all weekend was spent basically postering and flyering, um, getting in at four or five in the morning after, you know, the occasional flashlight in the face and <laughs> then get up and do it all over again and King Street and Glebe and Crown Street and, yeah, I don't miss it for a second. The sound of sticky tape being stretched out, <laughs> going round a pulse and Definitely. shudders down our spine. Yeah. Just I can't I can't actually imagine before the internet, though, just how you would God, ever it's, get... it's better. It's yeah. so much better now. <laughs> Okay, well, you did the hard yards in both promoting and law, but you left law to go for a special little interview at a, a little label called Inertia. Yeah. What was it, that like? Uh, it was it was great. Uh, it was interesting. Inertia were the ones who were the distributor for all the music I thought was great. They were giving us CDs to give away at our events. Um, I noticed they'd done a lot of great indie rock. Kind of the strokes had probably kind of pulled my head back into the land of indie rock after maybe, you know, seven or eight years of just listening to electronic music. Um, and there was a sales job going. I'd quit law and didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, Craig pointed out there was a sales position going at Inertia and I should go for it. Selling what? Uh, selling CDs. Wow. Uh, Does that shops. exist anymore? Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that's making me sound old. <laughs> Not that old. <laughs> but yeah, does that CD kind yeah. of selling job exist anymore? I don't. I think it does for JB Hi-Fi and Title, and there's a few still around and Red Eye, but I think it's shrunk enormously. And I just said, look, I don't particularly want to work in sales, but I love the company and I love what you work with. Can I come in, prove myself, and, and we'll think of something more interesting for me to do? Yeah. And after kind of two and a bit years, we started a touring company. Um, Was that partly responsible, you know, the collapse of CD sales? I think they could see coming that, you know, online downloads were going to be a big thing and touring was a major component of Mm -hmm. of the business. And, um, yeah, they just were very, you know, Ashley Sellers at Inertia was very generous. I had a a bank account and a laptop and it was just sat in the corner and I figured out touring. And um, Wow, that sounds really intimidating, though, because, you know, you're risking so much money when you're starting out touring. Did you get any help, really? No, no. That's the thing with promoting. It's... um, 
um, it's such a closed shop and it's a zero sum game. You know, your gain is my loss. I don't want you to pick up an act that I might tour because that uh, would have been my act. So it's not a supportive industry. So, no, well, it's very small and mm, why would anyone give their secrets away? So no, for absolutely everything from tax to budgets to visas, it was just taking really small bets that wouldn't tank the company if they went wrong and kind of accumulating a bit of wisdom that way and figured it out yeah. and ended up with, you know, things like Sear and the National and the XX that ah. more directly ended up with, you know, the current role. Awesome. And now we're going to play our next track. It is Joy Division. And which one do we have? We have Shadow Play. And Joy Division were a band I probably should have discovered much earlier in my life, but it reminds me of that transition period kind of going out of law and into inertia. Listen to Out of the Box and FBI 94.5. Ben Marshall is my guest today. Here you go. It's Joy Division.
out of the box. Subscribe to the podcast at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.
every step moving me up. Ben Marshall has been my guest today on Out of the Box. He is the Opera House's head of contemporary music and a newly minter winner of a Smack of the Year award for his contribution to Sydney music. And dear me, I am positively transported by that song, Arthur Russell. So let's talk a little bit about why you want to bring that one on. I have because it gives me chills and I have (laughs) chills just listening to it. Um, I brought it because Arthur Russell is an absolute genius. Um, that song is exquisite. There's an Arthur Russell Instrumentals Night in the Sydney Festival. Uh, I think it's this Saturday night, which everybody should go to if you don't already have a ticket. Um, and I discovered Arthur Russell working at Inertia. Inertia was this sort of incredible musical education. It was Inertia's a, a record distributor, has a touring arm called Handsome Tours. Mm-hmm. It's a management company and things as well. So and Handsome Tours puts on a lot of a lot of different events a lot of big festivals and stuff like that so yeah. like fairgrounds, fairgrounds festival that's right yeah so i thought i was a music geek going into inertia kind of amongst my friends i was into music more than anyone else and you turned up at inertia and it's like i was a rank amateur everyone <laughs> else like the warehouse guys in particular were just absolute aficionados of kind of you know noise music and fugazi and it was just I, it was a massive musical education working at Inertia and I loved it and I still remember sitting in the sales meeting when um, Soul Jazz Records brought out because Arthur Russell had been neglected you know 1980s artist um, completely neglected in his lifetime but was you know worked with Allen Ginsberg worked with Philip Glass Amazing. Um, made these incredible disco records cult following but tiny and Soul Jazz Records in 2004 put out a compilation uh, which was the start of the Arthur Russell kind of being dragged into the, the light yeah renaissance yeah, it was and I still remember being in the sales meeting and this figure being discussed and listening to this CD and kind of being thrilled that I was getting to discover incredible music like this and and rhythm and sound, you know, and um, and putting all of that to use in, in starting up the touring division. And it's just, it's so timeless and so brilliant. I, Arthur Russell's just, he's a goldmine. And not everything is great. You do have to kind of curate a playlist, yeah. but the gold is some of the best the, in the world. Yeah, it it's, goes beyond being able to say this is good music or this is bad music you know it it's outside of that it's outside of all of those kind of qualifications truly we have time for one last song this hour and gladly it is the national doled up in the straps now can you tell us a bit about why you wanted to bring on this this oh yeah look so many connections with the national reminds me of my sort of my wonderful wife claire and and you know can i interrupt you for a second how did you meet claire because i think there's a funny story (laughs) um i uh was doing yoga at the newtown yoga room on dixon street and my wife claire uh still teaches yoga there but she was a student in the class above me and we used to kind of make eyes at each other i was in the lower class she was in the higher class and she'd finished before me there was sort of eye contact and things and I just went right I'm going to get into that upper class I'm going to work really hard kind of get my mat next to hers and we're going to (laughs) we're going to start talking after class 
<laughs> and we, do the group we, exercises yeah, together. It's going to be exactly, so good. <laughs> exactly. I'll pair off with you. Oh, what um, a great advertisement for yoga. <laughs> I highly it worked for me. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so we, we uh, met in 2006 and married in, in 2009. And, um, and she, you know, she was there when I was kind of putting, you know, the touring company together for Inertia. And, and one of the first big wins I had was The National. Um, you know, I'd done a lot of things that were great and some things that hadn't worked at all. And The National was a record I'd heard in 2005 when I was still in the sales department. And it was weird because it was the fifth listen. Someone in there was just kind of bugging out over Alligator. And I just listened to it the first time and kind of gone, hey, it's nice. It's indie rock. Or, I've the heard this thing. kind of thing yeah. done before and better. And then on the fifth listen, it was just like, how did I miss those drums? How did I miss these lyrics? This is this is incredible. And I hunted The National when there was nothing going on for them um, on Alligator and then for Boxer. And then they finally agreed to come out. And I sold the three shows to the Sydney Festival and put them in Angel Place. Um, and there's this wonderful kind of cyclical thing where I was able to present them on the forecourt in 2014. Massive gig. They've just been this mm. sort of, you know, a, an act that affects me a lot. You know, I remember having to put Alligator back on the shelf. It's just like m- the melancholy's too much. I love this too much. I'm listening to it and my heart hurts. It's got to go back on the <laughs> shelf. And... Um, and they're just one of those bands and, you know, lucky enough to kind of catch up with them. And, and they're such lovely people and they don't take any of their success for granted. And it reminds me of sort of the transitioning from being a promoter to being an artistic programmer, meeting my wife, kind of championing things that you believe in and um, and working with, with music that touches you. It's an incredibly privileged career that I've had that I haven't had to work with things that I don't believe in. I may yet have to do that <laughs> at some point in my life, but, don't sell out. but so far I, I haven't. And, and these guys are a wonderful sort of emblem of that. Yeah, fantastic. You have the coolest job in Sydney and you've conducted yourself with much decorum. Congratulations on your smack and it's been fantastic having you on the show for the Thank past hour. Thank you very hour. much. It's been a real pleasure, Ash. And now it's time for our last song of the hour. Let's go for it. It's the National Dollar from Straps. I saw you riding in a car. You looked happy for a woman.
Where have you been?